Hi, welcome to another episode of the Behind the Stories podcast from UConn Journalism. My name is Adam Hushin, and I'll be your host as we investigate everything there is to know about protests, from behind-the-scenes preparation to how they are covered in the media. The First Amendment of the Constitution provides the right for peaceful assembly, and every day Americans are practicing this freedom in the form of protests, rallies, and marches. Some people get involved in community organizing and activism at an early age, making these activities prominent on college campuses. One such organization here at UConn is UConn PERG. PERG, which stands for Public Interest Research Group, has many chapters across the United States and Canada that employ grassroots organizing and direct advocacy with the goal of changing policy. UConn's chapter tackles several campaigns from banning the use of plastic on campus to making textbooks more affordable. Kylie Hillrood runs the Zero Waste campaign for UConn PERG and is also the organization's secretary. Through these positions, Hillrood is responsible for planning and executing events such as protests and rallies. According to Hillrood, logistics, recruiting, and the message itself are the important factors that go into planning an event. Okay, like when, where, what. So it's firstly getting setting out logistics, but it's also a lot is like messaging and recruiting. So it's like if you're holding this large event, you want to make sure you have a good message and a good message that, you know, resonates with a lot of people so we can get basically as many people as we can at this one event. And then recruiting. So it's talking to not only like the people that you in your own organization, but, you know, people who may not even, for example, like zero waste. It's a very much an environmental campaign, but we want to be talking to every single person. Like we want to be talking to USG. We want to be talking to, you know, maybe like the club sports teams because this is an issue that affects everyone. So we want to make sure we're getting as many people and as many as like diverse people as we can at these events. So recruitment, logistics, and then like the actual idea and messaging. Hillrood says that all three of these aspects must work together cohesively in order for an event to run smoothly and that none of these three facets is more important than the others. I think all of them are really important. I don't think you can just choose one because I think each... Each of those like three aspects go heavily into if an event is good or not because like yeah there could be a hundred people at this rally or something but if the messaging isn't good or like the logistics are off a little bit it's not going to be a good event it's like a tripod like if one of those things is taken away it's going to like fall over basically one step in the process of planning a rally is seeking media coverage for some major protest events like March on Washington for example. The press are already at the scene, ready to capture the story and inform the public. In the case of a much smaller scale event put on by a hyper-local organization like UConn Perg, it takes a little bit more effort. I like planned a rally last spring when I was doing that. We, we were reaching out to all these news organizations the, the two days to the day before the rally and the morning of, we were tweeting them. And like we got some press coverage, we got like three to four articles posted about the event. So that was cool. but. Yeah, definitely, like, you have to reach out to the, to the media. And even if media doesn't come, it's like following up and doing a press release, even if they couldn't make it. So, yeah. Bianca Pavancello is the managing editor of the New Britain Herald. New Britain is home to multiple colleges, including Central Connecticut State University. There are often groups holding advocacy events on these campuses and elsewhere in the city of New Britain and surrounding towns that the Herald covers. Well, usually we, if there's going to be an organized protest, um, we get advance notice either by email or a phone call. Sometimes we see it on Twitter if it's a student protest. A lot of times we'll see it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and then we 
make the decision to go ahead and send a reporter and photographer over to cover it. If it's something that kind of happens off the cuff and we hear about it, we hear about it three ways. Social media, we might get a tip from someone at the school that lets us know that something's going on right that moment. And we can also pick it up either on the police scanner or we'll get a report from the police or EMS or fire if they decide to go to the school to see what's going on or if they've been called. There are a few reasons a protest would prompt the Herald to send reporters to the scene. One, we're, gonna, we're going to cover it because it's out in public. People can see it. They're probably wondering as they drive by or walk by what's going on, what's happening. Um, and also because we want to be on top of the issue that these students are saying, this is really an issue for us, and uh, we want to let the school administrators know, but we also want to let the public know. So it's a, you know, we want to be sure that we are informing our readers and the public who may not be aware of what's going on on campus that day. While it is very rare that an event like this gets out of hand, safety is still a main priority for the journalists involved, as well as making sure the reporting is unbiased. Sure. Well, first of all, if, it, if we think it's going to be a protest or a rally that's going to get out of hand or might turn violent, the first thing is safety always. That's why if it's going to be something like that, we make sure that we send both a reporter and a photographer. So there are two people there. So if something happens, you know, they have backup, someone can get help. That hasn't been a case for us here in recent memory that that's been a problem. The second thing is to not yourself as a reporter or photographer be the story. So you're there to observe, you're there to report, you're there to interview, take photographs, talk about what's going on, but never to get yourself involved in the situation, never to take a side, and um, to make sure that the story is not about you, the reporter, but about what is actually going on, and to be unbiased about your coverage. So you're there to report, but you're not there to judge. It is always the role of the reporter to remain neutral, even if it may be difficult to do in a situation when covering an event advocating a certain agenda. Holly Sullivan, events coordinator of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League, suggested one easy way for the media to achieve bipartisan coverage of a protest or rally, using gun control as an example. One of the biggest frustrations that we have when it comes to the media is that um, when there is an incident or even just conversation about what should be done, they very frequently will seek the input of some of the anti-gun groups or anti-gun sentiment, and they rarely come to us for our side, or at least not as frequently. So it would certainly be more of a dialogue if there was that exchange where they said, hey, this is what were you know what this piece is covering and they say well, well let me hear what the other side has to say because when we talk about gun control a lot of it it's not just about taking guns it's about all the other facets right so the capacity of the magazine and you're interviewing people or speaking to people that don't necessarily understand the implications like where are the people that own these devices know how to use them understand the accessories the mechanisms all of those things come and talk to us because we actually understand what they do and what they don't do. So I think that we could definitely have more dialogue if we were more included in the conversation. Even with fair, unbiased reporting, the media can play a positive role for advocacy groups. Melvin Medina, director of strategic initiatives of the American Civil Liberties Union in Connecticut, says that an important strategy of community organizing is controlling the narrative of your issue. 
what you learn about organizing is that oftentimes you're in the work of storytelling. Um, and so what looks like a win is whether you won the larger narrative on your issue. Does, does, do people feel like you're progressing and moving forward? If people feel that way, that means you're winning a narrative, and that means that's going to result in more people getting involved, more minds are being changed, and you're starting to control policy narratives or community narratives or agency narratives, right? The American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, is well-versed in these types of strategies, having been aiding advocacy groups and teaching community organization for almost 100 years. We don't try to play a traditional advocacy role. What we try to actually do is engage people in the issues that they're facing in their life and empower them into being the change that's needed for our society. Empowering individuals to fight for change is what the ACLU is all about. And Medina understands that the main component in seeking change through community organizing is the people involved. You know, ultimately what we believe is that people empowered to, to make change are the most effective tool than any lawyer or any, any policy advocate, right? It's, it's people at the end of the day and their story that will cause change. One tool for these empowered people to take action with is an event such as a protest or rally. Medina of the ACLU sees a clear and important distinction between using the word event and what he calls an action. We, we wouldn't call them events, we call them actions, and there's a distinct difference, right? An event is um, often for people's consumption, and an action is often more likely the, the case of people doing something. And we, we like to distinguish those things because we, we want people to get out of a passive mode into an active mode. So what goes into events or actions really is tied to a strategic goal. So, for example, often in campaign work or in organizing work, you're, you have a preset defined goal that you're trying to get to, and often it's a very large goal. Besides protests and marches, there are other steps that the ACLU and other organizations take that would fall into this category of actions in the direction of a strategic goal. Right, like, so we're doing a combination of engaging community members to recruit and find people to build and grow our campaign. At the same time, we're, we're power mapping. And what power mapping is, is essentially saying, what are all the key stakeholders, the key people that have power that make the thing that we want to happen? And then the second follow-up question is, what is our relationship with those people and how close are they to doing the thing that we need them to do? And then the third question is, to get them to do the thing that we need them to do, what is that? Um, and that starts to define actually each what each action is. And it's really different depending on what you're trying to solve. So that can be anything like an open letter, postcards, holding a rally, holding a community event, holding a protest, doing a lobby day, testifying on a bill, you know, uh, doing surprise visits to uh, public officials or agency heads. So it's really that what you're doing before you do any action is you're predefining a large goal and all the many steps that you need to take to move the issue forward. With so much work going into achieving goals, there must be limitations to how much an organization can do. Medina breaks down the two main hindrances to his work. Every organization is limited by two main things. The first is resources, uh, often money, and the second is bandwidth, time. So we have to be really diligent at the ACLU of Connecticut in how we select the issues that we're going to get involved in. Um, if we spread ourselves too thin, we become ineffective, right, because we can't, you know, cre 
create uh, momentum in a movement. And if we narrow our issues too, too small, uh, then we're not effectively meeting people where they're at and finding solutions for the barriers that they're facing in their life or the discrimination that they're facing or the targeting of the government and what, many other things. Despite the risk of wearing themselves too thin, the ACLU of Connecticut is still currently working on over a dozen different projects with multiple organizations to create change. One of these organizations is the Connecticut chapter of the Women's March on Washington. Cassandra Martineau has worked with the Women's March for years in a leadership role. For her, working with other groups is an important part of the work they do. We try to come up and make sure that as many different groups and interests are represented as possible. We really uh, make a very conscious effort to make this as intersectional as possible when we do a large event. And we feel it's important that we really reach out to as many different marginalized groups as we can. And I feel like we've done a really good job with that here in the state of Connecticut and really try to encourage, you know, leaders from a lot of these groups and, and you know, make a space for them so that they can, we can use the attention that we got to lift up others. Including other groups is an important aspect of protest-type events for Martineau, who views these type of events as a platform to raise energy and inspire change, but should not be something that overshadows the important work that happens before and after. I, I've always personally viewed rallies as like, a, you know, really like a pep rally almost. You know, you go there and you get excited and you see how many people, other people care about the issue and, you know, you make your speeches and you yell and scream and hug each other and all that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's when you go back, those are just kind of to pull to your spirit, make connections, see how many other people care about these issues. But at the end of the day, it's the day-to-day -day work. That is certainly not to say that it doesn't take a lot of work to make an event happen. And success is not guaranteed. And it's amazing how much work you do before that event. And then, you know, on that event, I mean, yeah, there are problems, there could be issues, or, you know, we want to make sure last-minute changes or whatever. But, I mean, if we're doing things well, then we've got a lot of that work done ahead of time. And so that day isn't, you know, quite so stressful. As Martineau touched on briefly there, no matter how much planning and preparation goes into an event like a protest, there is still a level of uncertainty and risk that something could go wrong. Uh, I mean, the insane thing about event is you do all this work for months before and you're, you know, sending out your publicity and your social media and you're doing all that planning. And on that day, you just don't know who or how many are show up or, oh, my God, what the weather is going to be. And if it's 30 degrees and raining, you know, <laughs> all that work was for nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you're a little bit of a nail biter when it does come leading up to that event. But, you know, it can be discouraging sometimes. I mean, you know, you put up that work and, you know, on the whole, we've done pretty well. But every once in a while, you try something out and it lays an egg. And, you know, it's, what can I say? It doesn't feel good. While it may be devastating on that day to see all the hard work washed away by rain or some other factor, Martineau of the Women's March Connecticut chapter understands that it's all part of the process to reach a larger, long-term goal. you got to understand that's part of the process. And, you know, I think the whole deal with just doing activism and bringing up these issues, it's just really getting involved in the long-term commitment to doing that work. You know, we're here at this rally. We're feeling great. But, you know, bring it home. Bring it to the schools, bring it to the boardrooms, the meeting rooms, the offices. You know, if we can't stand up, 
for, you know, marginalized individuals in all these areas, then, you know, laws alone will not protect us. In other words, protests and marches are more minor steps to reaching the larger goals of each organization, which in the case of the Connecticut Women's March is to defend the rights of women and other marginalized individuals. For equality for all and to support the most marginalized communities. And that certainly is women. Essentially, we stand up for the humanity of every person. Medina of the ACLU says that working with and for the marginalized communities is important to defend individuals that are most in need of protection. That at the end of the day, we're a nonpartisan organization, so we don't have a political bias one way or another. We don't say we're not going to work with Republicans versus Democrats or whatever it may be. What we look at in our analysis of what we get involved in is who are the marginalized people and voices that are often facing harm by the government and what needs to happen to protect those folks. Because at the end of the day, it's often the most marginalized people in our society that are facing harms by the government. And if you allow that to happen, it's a slippery slope at that point where that, you know, that individual harm to just a select few can grow into a large societal harm. This engagement in organization against societal wrongs sees the ACLU working with several different organizations for several different causes. This does not exclude organizations that may not align with all the same values that the ACLU holds. Medina, however, sees this as a beneficial opportunity in their efforts, depending on what the issue is that they are working towards. There's always a benefit for the ACLU to work with organizations that we're often seem we often seem at odds with. Uh, we actually have a lot of example of that right now um, on SB 880, which is our prosecutor bill that we're working on, for example. We're working side by side uh, with victim advocates groups who often we find ourselves on opposing sides when it comes to criminal justice reform. Yet on this bill, we're able to work side by side because we both want the same thing. We both want more information, more transparency from prosecutors who at the end of the day are some of the most powerful positions in our criminal justice system. So uh, collaboration is absolutely possible. Um, It's always going to be dependent on what the issue is, what our bandwidth is, and whether we can, you know, meet our, our, those what often can be seen as opposing partners, you know, whether we align at the end of the day with the value of what that bill is trying to do. Holly Sullivan is the events coordinator for the Connecticut Citizens Defense League, which is an organization dedicated to defending the rights of the Constitution with a focus on the right to bear arms. They don't always feel the need to hold a protest or rally every year. Sullivan breaks down why that is. It has a lot to do with the call from our membership. So last year um, there was some significant legislation that our members were particularly fired up about. They, They really wanted us to have that presence up there last year. They're really, you know, what we do is multifaceted. So the rally is great, but it's not that that is all that the way that we bring about change. So this year we're focused just a different direction with a little bit more in the legislature um, and our, our people just really haven't had the, the call for one. So yeah, every year is just a little bit different kind of depending on what's going on in the legislature and how we tackle it and you know whether or not our, our, our people are really seeking a rally. Sullivan of the CCDL went on to say that her organization does not hold protests and that she views the purpose of a rally more as an opportunity for members to come together and make their presence known. Well, I think a lot of it is an opportunity 
to be visible to the legislators um, as well as to the media that the gun owners in Connecticut, they have something that they want to voice, whether it's for a bill or against the bill or whatever whatever it is that's going on. More likely than not, it's against the bill in this state, but it could certainly go the other way. And then the other thing is a, a rally is very different than a protest. And I, I want to you know always be clear about that. We don't host protests. A rally is really an opportunity for public speakers to come and for our people to get together and kind of hear a little bit about what those public speakers, you know, want to relate to them and how it's relative. It's also another opportunity for people to kind of get together and get to know each other. Regardless of each organization's varying views on the purpose of a protest-type event, it is a tool used to achieve goals in community organization. Melvin Medina with the ACLU Connecticut tells us why these events are so important. Community organizing is important because it's at the end of the day, uh, we built a government for and by the people. But the type of democracy that we built here in the, in the United States is representational democracy, meaning someone is acting on the behalf of a larger community, often a state representative or your, you know, the president or congressional delegation. For that system to be effective, those elected leaders need to understand what the community wants and needs. And the only way those elected leaders will understand what the community wants and needs is if that community is independently organizing itself to make their demands known. So it makes our democracy better, makes our democracy fairer, um, and at the end of the day, it makes our society and our government more reliable. The importance of protests and rallies can be seen in all the work that organizations like PERG, the ACLU, the CCDL, and the Women's March do. The big question is, how can you gauge the success of each individual event? The simple answer is that there is no simple answer. Kylie Hillrood, secretary for UConn PERG, sums it up. I think success can be determined in a lot of things. A lot of ways that like UConn PERG would look at it is like numbers. So it's like, oh, like we had like 50 people at this event. That's a really successful event. But like say we have 50 people at this rally and it's right outside the state house, and then you know, 15 of those folks go and lobby our elected officials, we would say that's a success. Having people there, but also making sure like we're, act, we're doing direct action to move on something that we're pushing for. I think spreading the message is like a, it's like very successful, but then I think taking that direct action of either like calling your representative or signing a petition or physically talking to them, I think that would be definitely a success. In other words, there are several different outcomes to an event, that can be labeled as a success, each a different level measured by how big of a step it is towards an overall goal. With that being said, community organization will remain a constant as long as there are causes to fight for, and protests, marches, and rallies will always be included in those efforts. That concludes this episode of Yukon Journalism's Behind the Stories podcast. Thank you to all the journalists and professionals who gave their time for these interviews. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in, and be sure to look out for more Behind the Stories podcasts. Again, I'm Adam Hushin, and on behalf of the rest of the UConn Journalism Department, I hope you have a great rest of your week.